The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, social, and political inequality. We hope you will listen. This past August 2023, host Keith Brownell spoke with the mother of Ryan Stokes, Noreen Stokes Crosby, and her attorney, Cindy Short, about the police killing of Ryan Stokes at the Power and Light District 10 years ago on a night in July 2013. Witnesses report Ryan Stokes was raising his arms and surrendering to an officer when another officer shot him in the back. Officers involved in this situation were cleared by a grand jury and never faced criminal charges. In June of 2023, the United States Supreme Court denied the Stokes family an opportunity to have the case heard and let stand the Eighth Circuit Court's ruling that the officer who shot him qualified for immunity, although Justice Sonia Sotomayor advocated the case for hearing. With that, the family of Ryan Stokes has lost their last hope in the wrongful death lawsuit against the Kansas City Police Board of Commissioners. Stokes' mother wrote in a statement following that court decision, The police should not be able to kill our children. All our sons and daughters should be allowed to come home and hug their mothers. That will only happen when either our Supreme Court or Congress changes the qualified immunity laws that allow police to shoot first and think later, leaving mothers with wounds that will never heal. Ryan's memory will live on. I will continue to support other mothers and all efforts to change policing in Kansas City and beyond. Cindy Short represented the family with Brian McAllister. Jaws of Justice feels strongly that Ryan Stokes' story should continue to be at the front of our awareness. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Please stay tuned in and hear our show. On July 28th, we marked the 10-year anniversary of the killing of Ryan Stokes by the Kansas City Police down at the Power and Light District. Today on Jaws of Justice Radio, we will be playing a 30-minute portion of an hour-long interview where Keith Brown Eel is talking with Ryan's mother, Miss Noreen Stokes Crosby, and her attorney, Miss Cindy Short. We hope our listeners will find the way the KCPD and the judicial system handled this situation interesting, shocking, and infuriating. Good morning. This is Keith Brown Hill, and today we'll be doing an interview with Mrs. Noreen Stokes Crosby and Miss Cindy Short. Miss Noreen is the mother of Ryan Stokes, who was unfortunately killed by the Kansas City Police Department back in 2013. And we have her on the air today, and we have her attorney with her, who is Miss Cindy Short. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. I would ask how you're doing, but this is not a pleasant experience, so and I know it probably gives you a lot of pain to have to recall these events, but we need to get this information out to the public and let them know what actually has taken place in this situation, because we don't want them to forget that this ever happened. So I'm going to start off, Noreen, with asking you, 
Could you give us a little background on the situation that led up to all of this? My son, Ryan Stokes, went down to the Power and Light, July the 28th, 2013, to have himself a good time with his friends. He was 24 years old, just a natural 24-year-old trying to enjoy his life. And some way or another, that night turned into a nightmare. Ryan and his friends were accused of two incidents instead of the one that he got killed for. It supposedly started out as a stolen cell phone from the power and light, and then it turns into he supposedly had a gun and wouldn't put it down. So he loses his life over everything that night, July 28th, 2013. Okay, now, where was he at when he was supposed to have had this gun? He was in the parking lot of Power and Light. I'm not totally familiar with the whole area there, but they were at some club or hanging outside of the nightclub or the area where all the young people hang. The altercation happened and police dispersed them by pepper spraying them. And so, you know, reaction is to either run or drop. He ran trying to get back to the car from all of this. He was in the parking lot down by the Kansas City Power and Light. Okay, now where were these people he had the altercation with? From me being told, they were speaking with the police or pointing him out to the police. This is what I'm told. Two white boys points him out. Okay, now are they accusing him of pulling a gun on them or having a gun while he was in the bar? No. They accused him of stealing their cell phone, stealing someone's cell phone. And he had his own cell phone, right? And he had his own cell phone. He had no reason to steal a cell phone. Well, and it's important to note, Keith, that Ryan was not accused of stealing anybody's cell phone. The accusation was never directed at Ryan. It was directed at another young man. And so that particular evening... Ryan and his buddies were down there celebrating a birthday. They never went inside Power and Light. You know, Power and Light is like a big block party. Young people went to just walk around and see friends. They saw a lot of friends that night. Ryan was sober. He was the designated driver. And he and his buddies had a really good time. They were running into friends from high school, friends that they worked with. And this is the very end of the night when the police are asking patrons to leave Power and Light, to leave the bars. And Ryan, Ollie, Kenny, and others are heading back to the car. They actually like being at Power and Light because of the police presence, which is the irony of this. And it is some white men from Johnson County who had been celebrating a 21st birthday and were extraordinarily drunk, who are coming out of a bar within Power and Light. And as they're doing so, one of the young men realizes that he has misplaced his phone and in a knee-jerk reaction accuses the first African-American man that he sees, which is Ollie Otley. And it is not Ryan. And a shouting match takes place on the corner, which draws the attention of the police. And instead of doing what the police, I think, would have done in 10 years ago, 15 years ago, which would have interacted with these young people by saying, what's happening? What's going on? 
Instead, what they do is they immediately resort to spraying pepper spray into the crowd. And as a result, the crowd disperses, they run. But the last images that we have of Ryan is Ryan in a basketball position, a defensive position between his friend Ollie and the young man that is yelling at Ollie and accusing Ollie falsely of taking this phone. My guess is that that phone was in the bathroom or on the bar floor, but was not in the possession of Ollie, was not in the possession of Ryan. And we know that from all of the investigation that was done by the police, by our legal team, that there was no phone in their possession. And so these young people, when the pepper spray is sprayed into the crowd, the police are saying disperse. And so white young people, black young people, Asian young people, all of them disperse, including Ryan, including Ollie, including Kenny. And they begin to jog up the hill towards their car, which is parked in the lot at 13th and McGee, which when these young guys went to Power and Light, this is where they always park. It's three in the morning. Lots of people are moving towards that parking lot. And how far is this from the place where the incident took place? It's about, it's a block, basically. It's a block up, and then it's going to be about a half a block north. And so this drunk man and his uncle move towards a bike cop, and they're explaining that they don't have their cell phone, and some black guy took it. You can see them on video pointing up the street, and that initiates a foot pursuit. And that foot pursuit really had no probable cause. That was the first mistake that these officers made. And one of the things that we wanted to change was we found out that the KCPD has no foot pursuit policy. Foot pursuits are extraordinarily dangerous for civilians, and they're dangerous for police. And so when that foot pursuit was initiated, Ryan didn't know it. Kenny didn't know it. Ollie didn't know it, and the police ran right by Ollie, which was the individual who had been accused of taking this cell phone. And there was no shouting, please stop, we need to talk to you. There was no indication to these young men that the police wanted to talk to them. And there was every indication from our uh, investigation of Ryan as a human being that if the police at any point said, we need to talk to you, we would like to talk to you, Ryan was the young man that would say, sure, I'll talk to you. Be happy to talk to you. But as Ryan's turning the corner to go down to the parking lot, he does not know that the police are in pursuit because there's no indication of that. So when Ryan enters the parking lot, unbeknownst to him, there's been a call on the radio that says two black males, white T-shirts, and then their direction. And there are two uniformed officers north of that parking lot that are now starting to move. And the bike officers don't know that. Certainly Ryan doesn't know that. And so we're about to have a really tragic collision where untrained, not patrol cops are in the area and are about to make a fatal decision as it pertains to Ryan. Was there any other festivities going on at the Power and Light on that night besides these people going out to celebrate their birthday? Did they have any entertainment going on or 
for the it general a, public or anything that a, it was a very busy night that night because we had a marathon going the next morning and there was a soccer tournament in town at Casey Sporting and so it was actually a very busy July night where lots of things were going on and so we had lots and lots of people in power and light so we did have a pretty significant police presence which we would want but unfortunately police have become so militarized that instead of in interacting with the public in a way that is community oriented when trouble starts you know it's a lot of approaching the public in a violent way as opposed to what should have happened when that young man approached this cop literally three blocks from the police department and this young man is saying i can't find my cell phone okay go file a report at the police department it's three blocks away there is a police department at power and light which was steps away why are you initiating a foot pursuit which is very very dangerous over a cell phone for god's sakes and they were never in the same location with these other people when a cell phone came up missing. No, no, they never were. And the thing about it is later when we deposed this, this young man that had initiated this foot pursuit, he was so drunk that he doesn't have a recollection of this. And one of the things that should never happen is for a foot pursuit to be initiated based on the word of a man that is intoxicated. And so later when we deposed the officer that initiated that foot pursuit, he lied through his teeth and claimed that this individual was not intoxicated. But the individual himself said, I was so intoxicated, I don't even remember the event. So he just saw three black guys. This is a white guy. And he just took it upon himself to assume they must have been the ones who stole my cell phone simply because they were black. Absolutely. The initial allegation was racially driven. There is no question about it. No question about it. Okay, now these people, two people that made the accusation, were they included in the litigation? that was filed against the police department. Sadly, you know, we looked at different ways in which we might be able to sue them, but there was not a pathway to sue them individually. So the best we could do was to, you know, do what we did, which which was to depose them. And so they were witnesses in the case, but there wasn't a pathway to sue them. I also wanted to be able to sue the officer who had initiated the foot pursuit individually, like we sued Officer Thompson individually, but there was no pathway to sue him individually. But Villafane, who was the officer that initiated that foot pursuit, in my view, you know, you, you would have wanted to show ways that he violated department policy, but the department had no foot pursuit policy. And so Villafane worked very hard to make up probable cause to demonstrate that he had a legitimate reason for initiating the foot pursuit, but that falls apart once the young man admits that he was intoxicated. Now, the other problem that Villafane caused was that when the drunk man and his uncle tells them about this alleged stolen cell phone, those two drunk people started to run after the alleged perpetrator of, of the theft, which now you've got a real problem. You've got these drunk guys running after, which could cause other problems, and which Villafane should never have allowed that to happen. So he's created two problems there at the end of the night. So the two problems were that you have officers engaging in a foot pursuit, and then you've got the alleged victims who are also involved in the pursuit. 
Yeah. And those two drunk guys got to the parking lot really right ahead of the officers and our witnesses to the shooting itself. And we see them on dash cam video towering at the fence outside of where the shooting occurs. Did they ever physically approach Ryan? No, they did not. Because Ryan was, again, not the person who they were accusing. It was Ollie Otley. They had run past Ollie Otley. Now, Ollie and Ryan are physically very different. Ollie is a small, slight individual who is in, in good shape, but he is physically, I mean, Ryan's nickname was Fatback. And mm-hmm. Ryan was a heavy duty uh, person. Yeah, he was, he was, you know, he was meaty. He was athletic as well. You know, he was a basketball player too, but he looked like a football player who played basketball. <laughs> Ollie right. looked like a basketball player. <laughs> so you would never mix up these two guys. Never in a million. Okay, now, was the cell phone ever recovered? No. My guess it was in the bathroom of PBR or it was on the floor of that bar. So they were in the bar. Yeah. Two drunk guys. Yeah. But Ryan and his friends, it was two other people with him, right? Yeah. And they were never even in the bar. They were never in the bar. In fact, the drunk guys came from one direction on the sidewalk and Ryan and his friends were coming from a different direction. So they kind of met at the corner, but they never seen each other the whole night. And the drunk guy was thinking that he had dropped his cell phone when he was out on the sidewalk, which that never happened. But he was, like I said, he was so intoxicated, he doesn't even remember the event at all. Okay, now, how did this situation develop where Ryan ended up being shot? So once Ryan crosses into the parking lot, he is going to Ollie's car, which is the car he came in. And because when the pepper spray was sprayed into the crowd, many people got hit and Ollie got actually hit in the eyes. And so Ollie hands Ryan his keys and says, get the car. And so Ryan is going up to the car and he was the designated driver anyway, and he's pulled in, backed into its spot. And so he's crossing over to the driver's side. And when he does, that Keith, he can't see the north end of the lot because he's just, he's looking to get into the car. Two cops, uniformed cops, are coming into the north end of the lot, and so as Ryan is opening his car door, the cops at the north end of the lot are coming in. But the, now the bike cops are coming in from the south, and Ryan's looking at the cops from the south, and he sees Officer Straub. Officer Straub speaks to Ryan. Ryan steps forward to Officer Straub with his hands coming up like this. Officer Straub holsters his gun just as Officer Thompson shoots Ryan in the back twice. Officer Straub then pulls out his gun prepared to shoot Officer Thompson because he doesn't know it's a cop. He doesn't know who's shooting because there's been no commands. Now, later, Thompson will claim to have made 10 commands But Officer Straub and all officers and all civilians in the parking lot will say there were no commands. None. Okay, now, how far away was he from Ryan? He was moving the whole time, Keith. So he's from the time he's entering the parking lot until he fires his weapon, he's moving. But when he shoots Ryan, he's about, he's two parking spots north of Ryan. Ryan is also moving towards Officer Straub. So when he's shot, he goes from the driver's side door virtually to the front or the hood of his car, and he drops right in front of Ollie's car because he's mortally wounded when he gets shot. Thompson shoots three rapid shots, hitting him twice. From what I understand about this situation, there was a lot of lies told to try to cover up what actually took place. 
Can you give me a list of details of all the lies and the things that were said that actually were proven not to be true? Yeah, so within two minutes, we have our first lie, which is the initial officer who calls in for report number, calls in for report number for assault of a law enforcement officer. So in the within minutes of the shooting, we have magically turned Officer Thompson into a victim and Ryan into a perpetrator. And so while Ryan is literally laying on the pavement, unarmed and bleeding to death, he is the perpetrator of the crime, and Officer Thompson is the victim of the crime, which is assault of a law enforcement officer. So that's- And he's two parking spaces away from Ryan while he's laying on the ground. Yes, and Officer Straub, who was facing Ryan, knows that he's unarmed, and he's yelling, and he almost shot Thompson because Thompson had made no commands. And he goes to Ryan to pull him over to see, is there a gun? Where's the gun? Where's the gun? And there's no gun. But this is what typically happens in these shootings is the first thing we do is we turn the victim, African-American man, into the perpetrator. He's the bad guy. So that's the first thing that happens. And then when the media officer gets onto the scene, the next thing that happens is they tell the news reporters who get their relatively quickly that we had a standoff. And so a standoff infers that we have a front-facing perpetrator to a front-facing cop where the cops are forced into a situation where they have to shoot the perpetrator. They have to shoot the guy that's in the standoff. So that's the story that they go with that 14 hours later when they come to the family and say, your son made us do it. He had a gun. He was in a standoff with the officer. We shot him five times in the chest. And so the real tragedy is that when these stories are told to many poor families who don't have any power in the situation will accept this narrative and not fight back. And they didn't walk into that situation. They walked into a a family, into a community that was going to find some power and not allow this narrative to stand. And that was not the expectation they were going to have. But here's the interesting thing here is Officer Thompson is African-American. Chief Forte was African-American. The officers they sent to deliver the news were African-American. And so this is a lot about the culture of the blue as opposed to anything else. And so the militarization of the police department, the violence of the police department, the cover-up by the police department is a culture. And it, it infects all of the officers that go into that department. Now, is there any footage of the actual shooting? So at the time, Forte fought body cameras. When he came in as chief, he did not want body cameras, and he fought them, and by at this time of this shooting, no body cameras. There was a camera on the Board of Education building, but the quality of that camera was, was poor, and so the footage that we have in the parking lot is very pixelated and so was not helpful to us. There is no video of the actual shooting. Now, what we did have was we had a police officer was in the 
parking lot who was a Liberty police officer. He was enjoying himself at the power and light, was trying to get out of the parking lot at the time the shooting happened. And so although he didn't see the actual shooting, he knew that there were no commands given. He knew that the shooting happened within seconds of Ryan passing by his car. And he also knew that the officers were responsible for pushing back and eliminating witnesses that were on the street and in the parking lot at the time of the shooting. And so one of the things that you see in these shootings is this very active effort by the officers who come onto the scene to get rid of all the witnesses that are not helpful to them. And that absolutely occurred here. And we do have that on video, which is interesting. Now, how many officers were in the parking lot at the time that this happened? There were three bike officers, and then there was Thompson and his partner. So there were a total of five officers on duty in the parking lot at the time of the shooting. And there was this off-duty officer that was in the parking lot from the Liberty Police Department. Well, I know that African-American police officers, they sometimes have the same mentality as the white police officers, even towards their own race. And what I was pondering over, and I was hoping that maybe somebody could answer, is it possible that a white officer might have shot Ryan and they got the black officer to take the blame for it, to cover it up, to try to ease racial tensions that they knew were going to certainly follow when this happened? Now, it's interesting because the fact that Thompson was black really never became very much of a feature in this case. I think a big issue for Thompson, to tell you the truth, was that Thompson had been a patrol officer for most of his career, but the nine years prior to this shooting, he'd been on a desk. That was his career choice. Uh, something like 15 years that he'd been on patrol and he'd been on, you know, SWAT, he'd been on uh, major crimes, he'd been on pretty serious details. He had never fired his weapon. But I think the nine years that he was off patrol, you lose your muscle memory. You, know, you lose your, what you have in the street every day. And when he, and the training I think had in some ways scares these cops, you know, it's a lot about get home, get home, get home. And this idea that the streets are so dangerous. And, and I think they become prejudiced by the same stuff, you know, this whole white t-shirt business, that white t-shirts are dangerous somehow. White t-shirts on black males are dangerous somehow. And I think that Thompson was infected by that. I mean, he told me in the deposition, you know, one, he lied, you know, he, he hadn't given commands, but he was trying to protect himself. He then said, well, I think that Ryan was trying to do suicide by cop. But what in the world would make you think that? There was no fact that would, would support that. Then he said, well, you know, he had watched these videos and trainings where if you didn't shoot first, then these cops get killed in these training videos they watch. And so you, they create such fear for these cops that these cops end up shooting first and asking questions later. And um, most of the times this is a successful strategy for them because they don't get punished. Uh, well, most of the time when they shoot, they end up killing the person that's being shot. So there's really no questions that can be asked. Because no. you can't talk to dead people. No, you can't. No. And, you know, and I'll tell you what, Keith, the whole department, the whole squad that night, the shooting team, really circled around him. And they asked no questions. When the cops that were in the parking lot were questioned, and you read their question and answers by the, the shooting team, there were probably two and a half pages long double space. They were maybe asked 10 questions apiece. When they questioned Ollie, 
when they brought him in for questioning, it the top of the page said investigation for felony murder. The interrogation lasted for 50 pages. Their intention was to try to prove that Ollie had stolen this phone and then charge him with Ryan's murder. That was how they were going to cover this up. So they were willing to take the life of not only Ryan, but take the life of Ollie Otley, who was a law-abiding father of, I think at that time, two little boys. I mean, was he ever charged? Disgusting. No, because Ollie Ollie was a stand-up, truth-telling, and he understood the game that was being played, even though he had no idea that they were looking at him for felony murder or that that was even possible, but he knew what his truth was. And so he was able to, you know, they would say things like, well, we have video. And he'd say, well, show me the video. And of course, they didn't have any video. And so the fact that the cops would even consider that was appalling. KKFI is supported by the Johnson County Museum Store, offering a selection of Kansas-made products, mid-century inspired housewares, and retro toys to complete your holiday gift list. Your purchase supports the museum's efforts to share Johnson County's story and history. The Johnson County Museum Store is open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and is located at 8788 Metcalf Avenue in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit jocomuseum.org. What you ought to do is get yourself a cup of coffee, put your feet up, and listen to good old country music every Monday morning, 10 until noon, on the Morning Medicine Show, right here on your community radio station, KKFI. We've been listening to Keith Brownell's interview of Noreen Stokes Crosby and her attorney, Cindy Short, about the police shooting of Ryan Stokes at the Kansas City Power and Light District in 2023. Now the calendar for the week of December 18th. Thursday, December 21st, 79, at the Gathering Baptist Church, 4505 South Nolan Road, Independence, Missouri, Casey Mothers in Charge is hosting the longest night of the year in honor of homicides in Kansas City during 2023. For more information, you can call 816-912-2601. A list of services, meals, and hotlines specific to sheltering are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice episode page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Stay safe. Thanks to all our listeners. We'll now return to our show and hear Keith Brownell speaking with Noreen Stokes Crosby and Cindy Short. Okay, Noreen, could you tell the audience a little bit about how you were informed of this and what took place after the shooting when the police or whoever came to your house, were you notified by telephone or did they personally come to your house to inform you of this? What were you told during this so-called investigation and the story that they had already put together? I was told firstly by Ryan's good friend, Lover. Lover Lover is his name, but we call him Lover. 
<laughs> he came to my door at three o'clock in the morning, banning, you know, a trouble knock, a hurting knock. This telling me that something had happened to Ryan. Ryan was down at the power line. He usually is with them uh, as well. He would be would have been with Ryan, but he stayed at home because he had babysitting duties. So he was at home and he can't. But he knocked on my door and he uh, was trying to see if we had heard anything or had anybody else contacted us. And I, I was asleep at that time. But you know, you get up with that knock. You. Right. And I got up and I woke my daughter up and I told her something's wrong. They're telling me that something has happened to Ryan. So I'm listening to that number, but I'm also getting dressed and I immediately go down to the power light. I asked my daughter to take me to the power light. I wasn't familiar with how to get into there. So we went down there and we saw the lights and the police and everything and everything roped off. Off of 12th Street. I remember it was 12th Street. I don't know if that's McGee, Maine, or, or what. But we go there, and so I'm trying to ask an officer. We get an officer. I can't remember his name. And I'm like, I'm down here because I've been called and told that my son has been hurt or something is going on with my son, and I'm trying to find out. Keith, they rude to us. They're like, go sit down at the bus stop right here. Wait, we're going to go get whoever's in charge or a sergeant or whoever. And he, the sergeant comes back to the bus stop where they tell us to sit, me and my daughter to have a seat. And he immediately starts saying, who are we? Who told us? What does my son look like? Which I guess that's, you're supposed to ask those questions. But then no good information, none at all. They tell us to go home and someone will call us. They give us some card and tell us they'll call us. So instead with me working at Truman, I go to the hospital because, well, if he's been injured or hurt, then maybe they've taken him to the hospital. So we get to Truman. And the police are there, but I'm not paying much attention to them. I'm trying to ask the nurses, did they bring anybody in and describe it right? Well, they tell me if they brought him in, we, we know it would be an alias because they wouldn't release his name. So that's when it really starts hitting. I'm feeling that something's wrong, something seriously happened to Ryan, and I'm not getting the answers. I'm not understanding what's happening here. So I proceed and I go on home. I get there, and, you know, as a mother, you just, I just can't be still. I just couldn't. And with him being my only son, baby boy, I just didn't want to accept it. And I wasn't trying to hear it, but it was there because then we called the police department again. We're calling and they tell us something like, just wait. I think, they, I think you heard it on the yeah. news first. Yeah, uh, well, we heard it on the news first, but they wasn't trying to give us any answers, Keith, at all. You know, and nobody officially ever contacted you. Nobody officially ever contacted me from the police department till later that Sunday evening. It had already been released on the news, the social media, and I had a friend that worked in the morgue that confirmed it for me that it was right. But the police had not made it to my home yet. Matter of fact, they called me when they were on their way to come to me and asked me, could we meet somewhere instead of coming to my home? They wanted me to meet them somewhere. And I said, no, you can come to my home and talk to me. 
and they came to my home. Keith, like a SWAT team, armored, like we were going to do something to them really bad. They were prepared. It was not nice. It's still to this day, it, it haunts me. Okay, now what happened when they got there? When they got there, my home was full, full of family, full of friends. And like I said, they were prepared like they were ready. If we would have struck them or had a riot, they were ready. But when they got there, this detective, Randall, I'll never forget it. He came and he addresses himself and then he says, I don't, he didn't even give me an apology or nothing. He just directly says they had to shoot Ryan because he wouldn't put the gun down. It was a standoff and they shot him five times in the chest. Did Ryan own a gun to your knowledge? No. He didn't even own a gun? No. Never had any interest in owning guns? No, he used his hands. Okay, now he comes to your house and he starts telling you this story about they had a standoff. What happens then? So I know this is causing you a lot of pain because I can hear it in yeah. your voice and I can see it in your face. I'm sorry. I, we have to this, go through this. We got to do it. I'm there. Um, when he tells me that, Keith, I think I passed out. I heard it, but I wasn't trying to believe it. I wasn't trying to hear it. But his, his dad and everyone else was really on the police telling them that they that's a lie. They they are lying. That is not true. Uh, they kept trying to tell us and my niece was asking she was screaming, Who who's your witnesses? Where, where's the witnesses? And they just stuck to that that there was a standoff and they had to kill him. And none of us believed that. We still to this day we know that's not the truth. Ryan wasn't down there when Trump he wasn't a troublemaker. He just was. Okay, now when did you start learning or uh, gathering facts to show that they had actually lied and fabricated this whole incident? When I called sin, when I got out of my shock zone and everybody was telling me that I was going to need an attorney and it was going to have to be an attorney that wasn't scared of the police. And once I called my attorney, that's when I started believing that it wasn't what they were telling. Now, how long ago... Was it between the time that you got the information from the police that you contacted Cindy? It was probably a week. It was very quick. After you started looking into the case, Cindy, what course of action did you pursue? So we moved very methodically. We talked to lots and lots of people and a lot of, a lot of experts, but we eventually filed a 1983 lawsuit against Thompson, against the KCPD, against Chief Forte in federal court because Ryan's Fourth Amendment rights had been violated as a result of their unlawful murder of him. Now, did this case go to trial in the district court? No, because when you file a lawsuit in federal court, there are lots of hurdles and police and police departments have a lot of protections. And each of those protections were afforded to first KCPD and their hot zone program was something that we had challenged because it was why Thompson was on the streets that day and in our opinion should not have been. And so that was the first thing to fall. And then initially, Thompson was not afforded the qualified immunity. And that decision by Judge Wines was taken up to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Eighth Circuit sent that decision back to Judge Wines to rethink 
And Judge Wimes then changed his decision and gave Thompson qualified immunity, which the Eighth Circuit liked better. And so we were then forced to take the case to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court only grants certiorari or the right to hear the case to very few cases every year. And although we were very hopeful that they would take this case up and and re-examine qualified immunity, in the end, they didn't. Justice Sotomayor was our one angel who did believe that this was the case to reevaluate qualified immunity, but the other justices did not agree. So the case came to a close. So you only had one dissenting opinion and one vote. Yeah, we, we may have had two, but you need four so. Yeah. Well, how long did it take you to get to litigation in district court? So we filed the lawsuit three years after the shooting. And so it took seven years from that period of time to the decision with certiorari. So it was three years of investigation and then seven years of litigation. I would say the first year, Keith, was for grieving for the family to allow them to really period without litigation. For us, it was investigation and then seven years of litigation. And Noreen, what else have you done besides carry on the litigation about Ryan's death? I've heard your name periodically about and the situation. You've been involved in some other activities, too, with other groups and people trying to call attention to this matter. What have you been involved in? It's a lot of the organizations that really have reached out to me. And when I first started out, I was with the group of One Struggle, where they were called Casey One Struggle at that time. I went to SCLC. I also reached out to NAACP. So I've been really involved with a lot of organizations and speaking and standing for Ryan's name. We've done some protests and we were honored to have Ryan a basketball court put in his name as well. That was his, I mean, love and basketball. But then Keith, let me tell you, it starts from my heart of Ryan being four years old and playing with the, the Y. And then I move him out of the Y into junior high school and high school and community basketball teams that I was involved with him. And he played ball all the way up to his death. And he also played for the Kansas City Police League. I have trophies where he played for, I guess they call it the PAL. And he played ball for them, and that's why it tears me up that they don't recognize that Ryan had very good character of playing sports and reaching out to the community. How much media coverage have you had from the local news agencies? I, you know, I remember at one time I, I did an interview with you myself, I think, when it first happened, and yeah. uh, had you and the family there. Uh, yeah. But did, have it, has anybody else stepped up to try to have your story told to the public? Oh, yes, Uh and Cindy have, how many times we've been, Cindy? Yeah, we've done a lot with KCTV. We've done a lot with public radio. We've really been blessed. We've done stuff with the Art Institute. And, yeah. and we really tried to do a lot of restorative justice types of activities. We currently have someone working on a book. We're working on a children's book. So we really feel that our activism is continuing even though the lawsuit and criminal charges, even though the criminal justice system and the civil justice system fail. Okay, now I've seen a picture or two of Ryan when he was holding a little girl. Who was the little girl that that he was holding on the picture? 
That's his daughter, Narayan. She's 11 years old. And I mean, that was his pride and joy. She was too young to even understand what was happening then, right? Yeah, she was, I want to say she was about maybe 18 months when Ryan got killed. Now, do yeah. you have any other children besides Ryan? I know you said he was your only son. He has two sisters that are older than him. So Ryan was their baby brother. And then he was yeah. very, very close to his sister's Sisters, children, yeah. Particularly yeah. to um, nephew Ryan. Right. Yeah, because I recall when we did the interview with you, you had some other gentlemen there. I don't know if they were his cousins or his nephews or whoever, but they were there at the interview and they had some information that they had gave us because we, we were trying to make the public understand what type of person Ryan was and they were very helpful in trying to give us some information about that. Yeah. On YouTube, you can find a lot of video testimonials about Ryan. We did family members, friends, and then Nareen did a really wonderful video that's still up where she tells the story through placards. So there's lots of really great information about Ryan if people are interested in knowing who he was as a human being. Okay, now can you give me some information about the basketball court? How did that come about? Early on, we had done some work with Nareen and Naraya and Brittany and talked about the concepts of restorative justice and what the non-economic needs were. We wanted to change policy, including the foot produce policy. We wanted an apology. We wanted them to withdraw the commendations. And we wanted a basketball tournament that was named for him. And through working with the artists at Art Institute, we were brought together with Sykes Industries, which is a group that does a lot of our wall art around the city. And they really came up with the concept of doing the basketball court. And they met with Nareen and Ryan's sisters and with Brittany and with Naraya to help them pick the concepts and the colors. And I think it was two years ago, we gathered together yeah. on the anniversary of his death and dedicated that basketball court. And it was all through donations of private citizens as, as well as the donations of labor by Sykes Industries. And it really it was a beautiful testament to Ryan, which needs a little touch up now because it's been so well loved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any other plans for the future as far as what needs to be done about this situation? Well, I think now we'll just be joining others in their fights for justice. And particularly More Squared has the coalition that has filed to have another Department of Justice investigation come in and look at KCPD, not only for their hiring practices and their discrimination against African-American officers, but also the violence that they perpetrate against the community. So we certainly want to be part of that. Yeah. Um, we want to continue to speak up against qualified immunity and be visible. We want Ryan's name, and this has been true forever, to be part of the national conversation. Ryan's name is now in a Supreme Court opinion. That will be forever. And we have a justice who believed that there was a terrible injustice here in Kansas City. And so we will uh, continue to be part of that fight. Now, at the time that Ryan was killed, I imagine that there have probably been numerous other incidents, but they, they weren't being covered or highlighted at the time that this took place. I think the biggest thing that had happened before Ryan had got killed was Trayvon Martin. Yeah. But yeah. we have had a, just almost a ton of incidents that have taken place throughout Missouri since yeah. here in Kansas City, here in St. Louis. 
and various other places. And we've had a situation with George Floyd. And I don't have any doubt that until something is done, that there are going to be a lot more incidents like this. We have to make the public understand that if you want this to stop, yeah. we have to all become a part of this. Yeah. So I appreciate both of you coming in to do the interview with me. And I want you to know that if there's anything I can do personally to be of assistance to you, all you have to do is contact me. And if I'm available, I'll be right there on the spot. All Thank right. you. Thank you so much, Keith. I think our time is about up. So all right. okay. All right. Thank you, Keith. Thank you very much. Yes, all we right. appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. While African-Americans were busy preparing to celebrate the 4th of July this year, a holiday that is really a mockery when it comes to black people, the United States Supreme Court sent another reminder to the people of Kansas City, Missouri, and elsewhere, that black people in America still are not free, and that we can still be murdered by the police anytime, anywhere, for any reason in the tradition of modern-day lynchings. On July 3rd, just hours before Independence Day was set to begin, the High Court rejected the appeal in the Ryan Stokes murder, which was wrongfully, recklessly, and willfully committed by Kansas City policeman William Thompson. Ryan's mother, Mrs. Noreen Stokes Crosby, had appealed the decision by a lower court that gave Thompson qualified immunity for shooting Ryan in the back while Ryan was attempting to surrender. Since July 28, 2013, the date of Ryan's death, Noreen has been fighting this grave injustice. Yet Thompson was never suspended, is still employed at the KCPD, was even given a commendation by the Board of Police Commissioners for killing Ryan, which was later revoked. And Thompson has also refused to apologize to Ryan's family for this tragic injustice he committed. So what all of this means is that if you are black and the police want to shoot you, all they have to say is that they thought you had a gun and none of what they claim even has to coincide with the facts, but they can still get away with it. Qualified immunity is supposed to mean that if a government official does something that is illegal, but there is no law which could have given him or her guidance on the subject, then the conduct of that official can be legally excused. But since when is shooting somebody in the back while they have their hands in the air and are attempting to surrender not clearly understood to be wrong? The problem with qualified immunity is that its real purpose is to give government officials a way to escape accountability. And qualified immunity always ends up being absolute immunity when the police and other law enforcement officials are beating and killing black people, no matter what the circumstances are. Technically, there is no such thing as qualified immunity in this state because the Missouri Constitution requires that for every injury, there must be a remedy. Article 1, Section 14, but qualified immunity eliminates what our state constitution intended to remain in place. So now, when something like this happens, we literally have no other recourse. You can call that last statement whatever you want, but there is simply no other way to interpret the message that the Supreme Court is sending by issuing this kind of ruling. Waiting on the judicial system to give you justice in cases like these, it's fruitile. It's just not going to happen, no matter how egregious the wrong or the wrongs may be. These kind of messages 
not only endangers the lives of private citizens, but they endanger the lives of the very police officers the courts claim that they want to protect. If the police stop you for any reason and they think or they claim to think you have a gun, we already know what can happen based on examples of what rogue cops have done to people in the past all over this country. So if the cops stop you, you can sit there and hope they just don't kill you for nothing. Some people keep saying that better training for police officers is the answer, but I strongly disagree. Arguments like these are intended to misguide people and lead them in the wrong direction. And here is the reason why. It is no secret that police departments all across the country have been heavily infiltrated by white supremacist organizations. The FBI, the Department of Justice, and the White House have all confirmed this. So how is better training going to help in these kind of situations? Many of these police-involved shootings are motivated by white cops' racist attitude towards blacks. When these white racist cops leave the station to go out on patrol, their minds are already made up that they want to kill a black person, and they will be looking for any excuse they can find to do it. Many times, their bosses, the prosecutors, the judges, and other officials whom these cops have to answer to are okay with this, because these officials have the same attitudes towards blacks. So when a shooting happens, the higher-ups are willing to ignore it or help the cops involved cover up their guilt. Therefore, having a job as a police officer has become a sanctuary for racist rogue cops, and all the better training in the world is not going to change that kind of attitude. We have to have better early detection methods in screening people who apply for these jobs. We must discontinue the practice of simply throwing a badge, a uniform, and a gun on just any stray dog who wanders into the police station. If it is at all possible, we have to learn to recognize criminals who don't have criminal records and deny them the opportunity to commit a crime in the name of the law before it occurs. Unfortunately, that didn't happen in the case of William Thompson, who killed Ryan Stokes. It didn't happen in the case of Darren Wilson, who killed Michael Brown. It didn't happen in the case of Jason Stockley, who killed Anthony Lamar Smith. It didn't happen in the case of Eric DeVolcanier, who killed Cameron Lamb. It has failed to happen in every case where a cop has shot somebody in the state of Missouri. And it has failed to happen over and over again, too many times, in too many other cases elsewhere involving too many others. Now, we appreciate the dedication, the funding of private citizens, the time and labor of various artists who have tried to memorialize Ryan's time here on this earth. But we can't just settle for a basketball court being named in Ryan's honor because he used to play on it. What we really care about is Ryan's mother receiving justice for her son. We care about all of the other mothers receiving justice for their sons and daughters who have also been wrongfully killed by the police. And we care about receiving some assurance that this city and this country is trying to take more meaningful actions to ensure that incidents like these will not keep happening in the future. In the case of Cameron Lamb, not only did Eric DeVolcanier have no justification for shooting Mr. Lamb, but he planted a gun in Cameron's car so he could claim that Cameron was getting ready to shoot him and that he killed Mr. Lamb in self-defense.
in November of 2021, DeVal was convicted for the murder of Cameron Lamb here in Jackson County Circuit Court, but he only received a six-year sentence and has yet to serve even one day in jail. He is currently resting comfortably at his home while he awaits a possible pardon from the governor. If that doesn't happen, the Vulcaneer's conviction could still get thrown out on appeal due to an intentional lack of diligence by the Missouri Attorney General's office, who is supposed to be fighting to maintain the Vulcaneer's conviction, but most likely will not. Governor Mike Parson and Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey just recently forced St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner to resign. They claimed she was not sending killers and other dangerous criminals to jail and was letting them back out on the streets. What she was really doing was exposing corruption in the system and refusing to prosecute cases that were tainted by false testimony by cops and snitches and where there was a legitimate lack of evidence. The Vulcanier has been legitimately proven in a court of law to be a real killer and dangerous person. Yet Parson and Bailey now appear to be willing to actually do the same thing in the Vulcanier's case, which they falsely accused Kim Gardner of. These type of politicians make a mockery of justice with their shameless, outrageous, and unforgivable hypocrisy. But despite the outcome in the Ryan Stokes case, we still need more people like Miss Noreen Stokes Crosby and attorney Cindy Short to keep on fighting to try to change this corrupt system. My name is Keith Brown Eel. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., 
followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts.